Welcome to the St. Richard's Episcopal Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Rev. Cameron Nations. For more information, please visit strichards.org. So last week, uh, we also read from a portion of Romans chapter 12. Uh, In fact, we read the first half of Romans 12 last week. We get the second half this week. And last week, the question that was put before us was this one. What is church? What is church? There we go. I was just about to say, y'all had the right answer last week. And and yeah, yeah, Tish is on it. Uh, Yes, we are. We are. So at 8 a.m., this is a stark contrast to what happened at 8, I asked the question, and everyone responded, but it took me a second to realize it because they were just like mouthing it. So I asked, what is the church? And they're like, we, we are. <laughs> it's like, oh, you can say it out loud. You know, it's fine. But yes, okay, the answer is, what is the church? We are the church. You and I, we're the church. The body of Christ, as Paul puts it. Many members, one body, using our gifts, which God has given us out of an abundance of his grace to do the things that he has given us to do. We talked about how this passage has been for us a big one at St. Richard's this year. I mean, not technically, I guess, Romans 12, but 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about this same thing, but in a bit greater depth. Our parish retreat, as I mentioned last week, our parish retreat back in May, uh, picked up on a theme from 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, that was, uh, it was called One in the Spirit. It was all about the Holy Spirit and that there are many gifts given to us, but one spirit, and there are many members, but one body, that the church is not the buildings or the stuff, though those are important, but the church is the assembly, the people, and together we remember, literally, uh, Jesus every single Sunday, every single Sunday. And so if that was the question put to us in Romans 12 last week, what is the church? This week, the question is, okay, but what does that mean? (laughs) What do we do with that? What does the church do? If we are the body of Christ, what does it look like to be the body of Christ? Now, much of the content of Paul's letters could be said to basically be answering this question of what it looks like to live as a Christian. I mean, think about all the communities he was writing to, whether it's the Galatians or the Corinthians or the Romans as we get today. Paul and his communities, they were really working out the answer to this question in real time, right? There wasn't a manual that was available to them to know what it was uh, to, to live as a, Christ, uh, as a Christian. I mean, the manual that we're using is Paul's letters, and they were, they were getting those, right? There wasn't a tradition to lean on necessarily or many examples to follow, and so Paul was having to figure this thing out. What does it look like to be followers of Jesus. What does it mean? And so, because this passage is so good, and it almost preaches itself, and because I think it's really important, I want to take it up this week and walk us through this passage from Romans 12, piece by piece, answering this question. So if the church is the body of Christ and we are the church, what do we do with that? How do we live? Because if we as a community are taking seriously Paul's understanding of the church, and I talked about how we are, right? I mean, this many members, one body, that's our stewardship campaign for this next year. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. But if we, 
you and me together are the body of Christ, then we need to attend to what Paul has to say to the church in Rome this morning. So let's take a look. And I really am just going to walk through this. So pull out your bulletins. I would say your Bibles, but we all know you're reading your bulletins. Let's pull out your bulletins. And let's look at this. So this picks up exactly where we left off last week. Uh, And Paul begins by saying, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In, In other words, let your love be real. Right? If part of how the world is going to see that we are followers of Jesus, if part of how they're going to see that is by the way that we love one another and the way that God loved us, then that has to be sincere. (laughs) That can't be that sort of superficial thing that, again, none of us have ever experienced in church, I know, but that kind of superficial, almost like pretend affection for one another, right? Paul says, we can't have any of that. Let your love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, if you go and you read other of Paul's letters, especially Corinthians. The Corinthians were just up to all sorts of stuff. But if you go back and you read Corinthians, you'll know that early in the church's life, they were already starting to kind of split into little factions. So like, for instance, in Corinth, you had the wealthy people who were being, who wanted some VIP treatment in the church and all that sort of stuff. And Paul has to be like, no, that's not how it works. That's not how the kingdom of heaven is meant to operate. And so what he's saying here to the Romans is like, look, if you want to get competitive about something, get competitive about this. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's the thing that we can try to compete in. Don't don't get caught up in the rat race that the world wants you to get caught up in. This is what we should focus on. Do not lag in zeal, he says, but be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer, Paul says. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Now see, part of our stewardship campaign for this year has focused on the idea that stewardship really is way more than just what we do with our money. But here Paul is saying much the same thing. You are supposed to contribute out of all of your gifts, your financial ones as well as the ones that, I don't know, God's given you, your time and your talents as well. Contribute to the needs of the saints and extend hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now this is an echo of another teacher we may be familiar with. I don't know. Of Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus? Okay. Yeah, so this is one of his teachings, right? That Paul's basically quoting and picking up on here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And just like when Jesus says it, it's a very simple statement that we all know is incredibly hard to live out. But this is what Paul challenges us to do. Rejoice with those who rejoice, he says, and weep with those who weep. Now, some translations have mourn with those who mourn or grieve with those who grieve. And I actually am really compelled by this part of uh, of this passage today in particular because I think that translation about uh, mourning with those who mourn gets us to see the significance of this in a little bit of a different way. 
Because grief and mourning were not private affairs in Paul's day. Those were not things that you kind of kept to yourself. We, we don't like public displays of emotion. We tend not to like that. But in the ancient world, actually, public displays of emotion were what you were supposed to do. Grief was accompanied by a lot of ritual and ritualized things. Mourning was a ritualized process in which you enacted your grief within the context of a community. And Paul's actually saying here that we need to be attentive to that as Christians, to be empathetic and compassionate, to grieve with those who are grieving and, weeping, or, and, and rejoice with those who are rejoicing, to enter into the experience of others and come alongside them in solidarity with that experience. And I think part of why this particular uh, verse from this passage always leaps out to me is that I think it can be increasingly easy in an age where we are exposed to so much grief, so many people's mourning and grieving, that we can start to get dismissive of it. That we can even sometimes start to, I don't know, just want people to move on with it. Well, why are you complaining about this? Buck up, right? Stiff upper lip and all that sort of stuff. But Paul's actually saying, do not be, become desensitized to the pain of those around you, but enter into it with them. Um, we tend to have an easier job with the rejoice with those who rejoice, so I'll, I'll just let that stand. But, but this is what Paul is instructing us to do. He goes on, and I think this is related to that idea, to live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. If you can't enter into somebody's pain, if you can't stop and pause and ask yourself, why is this person hurting? then you've probably missed Jesus, quite frankly, because your heart is not open to, uh, to those whom we are want to ignore. So this idea of empathy and compassion is crucial, crucial for Paul. Now, do not repay anyone evil for evil, he says, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. This is uh, another Jesus quote, pretty much, right? An eye for an eye, right? We've heard this. Do not repay evil for evil. If it is possible, Paul says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. And though, again, uh, Paul is not directly quoting Jesus here, I can't help but hear an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Beloved, Paul writes, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, and this always was one of my favorite Bible verses, I have to admit, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink, for by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads, their heads being your enemies. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Now, I actually think there's a lot of gospel in this. This idea of making room for God's wrath, that vengeance is God's and not ours, is actually good news because we're not really capable of dispensing God's vengeance. Right? We want to be, and sometimes we try, but we're really not equipped to do it. And so Paul says, look, don't avenge yourselves. God will take care of that. Instead, do these things. 
in another echo of Jesus' words, the Gospel of Matthew in particular, I think about. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And he says, actually, by doing this, it's like heaping hot coals on your enemies' heads. Somebody last service got a little worried that may be literal. Like how, but, but it's not. It's not. We're okay. Feeding people is what we should do. And then there's this crescendo right at the end. This is what Paul's been building to the whole time. Do not be overcome by evil, he says, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if we're asking this question of, okay, if we're the church, what do we do? I think that ultimately, this last verse here is the life to which we are called in summation. To not be overcome by evil, but to, in fact, overcome evil with good. Now, before we get the wrong idea, I want to address something about this. Because if this exhortation to overcome evil with good feels a little impossible or unmanageable, that's okay. (laughs) I want to redirect your attention to everything that comes before it, okay? Because this idea of overcoming evil with good sounds like we've got to, like, ride into battle or something and defeat the forces of evil in this world, a la your favorite movie, right? But this is a battle that is won actually in little, in small but profound ways each and every day. Comforting a grieving friend, for instance. Or offering a word of hope to someone who's in need. Providing a meal to someone who's hungry. Having your heart broken while reading the morning paper, devastated by a story of the downtrodden and dispossessed. Closing your work email to open your own arms to your child. Turning your phone off so that you can actually sit and talk to your spouse. These may sound mundane, but all of these are actually ways that we can overcome evil with good. And truthfully, friends, I mean, this is why I really do believe that a church that takes seriously God's call to discipleship can absolutely change and transform its community and beyond. It's why I believe with all my heart that a vision of stewardship that focuses only on money alone won't do it. It won't do it. Because stewardship, as I said last time, is discipleship. How we use all of the gifts that God has given us each and every day when faced with these things, it's how we are the church. Every day we are faced with countless opportunities to defeat evil and to speak life and light into the world. Each of us here and now today has the opportunity and the ability to do what Paul says, to overcome evil with good. Now, I actually believe that one of Satan's most potent weapons is having us think and believe that it takes a mighty army or the strength of a superhero to defeat evil, as if evil is just this huge force that's out there that we can't actually defeat or fight. 
I think Satan's best weapon against us is making us believe that we are incapable of doing what Paul exhorts us to do in today's passage from Romans. But you already have what you need. You already have what you need. You have enough. Because Jesus already did the hard part. Jesus already did the hard part. And so friends, do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit and serve the Lord. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. For service times or more information on St. Richard's, please visit strichards.org.